I'm Chandra Jenkins, Executive Director of the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. We are proud to sponsor this very special series from Add Passion and Stir that focuses on the contributions of young adults fighting to end childhood hunger here in the United States. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today with a couple amazing guests and an amazing sister of mine, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Strength. Hey, Deb. Hi. Thanks for being back here. Um, And also... Derek Brown, mm-hmm. who is bartender of the year in many eyes, not just you've just not been named bartender of the year once by a number of publications. And you've got the Columbia Room and you've been a supporter of Share Strength. And we're thrilled to have you here. I'm really happy to be here. So, and Jerry Mason Hall, uh, you have already made such a big difference in the work of Share Our Strength, and particularly in terms of the next generation that's getting involved through Stop Hunger USA and the Sodexo Foundation. You are chair and president of the foundation, a senior VP at Sodexo. Thanks so much for being here. Yes, I'm so happy to join the discussion. Thank you. So wait, we were just all talking about where we came back from. My sister just came back from Winnipeg where we had a Taste of the Nation event. Um, yeah, we had a it. Dinner. 25 years they've been doing this dinner and this just incredible group of committed people for Share of Strength. Uh, it was really it was really great. One of the one of the chefs who is 75 just retired and he was like the big honored chef there. From, I, yeah, he was great. I have to quickly tell you my favorite Winnipeg story because I went to this event 15 years ago. It's a black tie event. It's a really big deal in Winnipeg. But nobody told me it was black tie. Um, <laughs> and so we changed planes in Minnesota. And I'm traveling with a colleague, Chuck Schofield, and he says, where's your, where's your tux? And I said, well, what do you mean, where's my tux? I've been to a thousand of these events. They're never black tie. He says, well, this one's black tie. He says, I'll take care of it. Just let me get on the phone. So he's on the phone from Minnesota where we're changing planes. When I get to the country club where the event's being held, uh, there's a general manager standing out in front. He was like, Mr. Shore, I understand there's a problem. We've got it solved. No, don't worry. Come with me. We go into his office, and there's a tux hanging on a, uh, on a hook. And next to it is a waiter in his underwear. Oh. True story. A small, a small waiter. <laughs> I looked like John Candy in this thing. Uh, I mean, the guy was literally in his underwear, and that's how I showed up. So, anyhow, I'm well, glad it was, it was you. a solution. It, the... uh, and you're just back from Paris. Yes. Doing yes. fun. Uh, well, well, of course, you guys, you have a uh, headquarters there, don't that you? That is absolutely Sodexo. our right. global headquarters for Sodexo is in Paris, right outside in Issy. But more importantly, in, in addition to the business, we also had a big dinner, and it was our annual Stop Hunger Foundation dinner that's held in Paris, and it was amazing because this year we chose to recognize women, um, March being the month that we honor women, but it was fantastic to see these women from around the globe um, and the work that they're doing in their communities to stop hunger. Fantastic. And, uh, all supported by Sodexo. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we actually, on site, in addition to the grants that we were giving them, we raised money with the attendees in real time on iPads, donating to their favorite among the causes that were represented. It was outstanding. Yeah. Derek, where are you back from? Well, I'm back from Capitol Hill, so I didn't go very far, did I? <laughs> good. Uh, <laughs> in my house, right up the street. This was incredibly convenient, so thank you oh, for good, having good. the studio here. Uh, Derek, <laughs> I want to talk about what you do because I feel like all we're, we're all blessed to do really fun things and really meaningful things, and we, we love our work. But one of the things that struck me uh, as I was reading a little bit about you, Derek, is in Star Chef it said, Derek Brown has one of those dream jobs that your high school counselor never tells you about. He yeah. drinks for a living. <laughs> and you you actually have a really fun job. And I just want to know how it uh, how it came to be. Like, where did where did this start for you? 
Yeah, it's funny because that's exactly the truth. If somebody had told me in high school, if they were like, hey, you know what you can do for a living? You can be a spirits judge. You can write about cocktails and spirits. You can own bars. I would have jumped at the chance. <laughs> and, and you're really credited for kind of like shaping the, the so-called cocktail scene in Washington, D.C. And, and other places and yeah, I was influenced lucky, nationally. I was lucky to be there at the beginning where there was a few bartenders in D.C. Gina Cherisavani is another one um, who definitely put their imprint on bars in D.C. And, and changed the drinking culture, which is really cool. I mean, it really acknowledged the sort of culinary foundation of um, cocktails and the history of cocktails and started to you know, just improve the way we drink as a city. Um, and now I'm incredibly proud to say Washington, D.C. is, I think, the best drinking city in the world. But how I started is kind of funny because I just was, I guess, a shiftless loser. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was, uh, you know, b bouncing around on a long plan for college, you know, trying to figure out uh, what my life would be composed of. And, and at one point, I uh, started bartending. And uh, it just kind of fit like a glove. There was something about the fact that it was so creative, um, that it had this social element, that there was this ability to connect to people. All of that really made it wonderful. And this history behind it that I started to learn about um, really inspired me. And so I... Which has got to be one of the things that's a little different about you from your average bartender. I mean, you really dug in to understand, oh, sure. like, what what are the origins of this? How does it connect to the culture? That must be a big ingredient of your success, that kind of curiosity. Yeah, it's a rabbit hole, too, because, I mean, we really go back, and I studied anthropology in school, so human origins are very important to me. And so when you really go back, you see alcohol at the very earliest human endeavors. And so I think you, you see it as part of religious ceremonies. You see it as part of um, agriculture so much. So it really is an ex it was exciting to me to find that way to express my interest in the world. You know, and so at that point, I thought somebody is the best bartender of the world, and I have no idea who it was or is, but I don't know why it couldn't be me. So just to be clear, I'm not the best bartender in the world. I don't even really bartend anymore. But I went down that path, and I tried my best to learn everything I could. So how old were you when this started? I was you? about 27. Okay. So, yeah, I was a little late on the train. And, and were you a consumer of, I mean, were you a, a drinker of all these drinks? I mean, was that part of what got you interested or was it really just kind of the history, the communication with other people, the, socio the social part? Yeah, it was, it was everything. Yeah. I mean, I've always been a, a whiskey drinker and that's principally what I drink uh, um, from then to now. But um, I love cocktails and I love the history that they express and I love the creativity behind them and, and I love how how people bond over them. Like endless possibilities too yeah. when you think about it, right? Like when you think of all the different, you know, ingredients and uh, things that you can infuse it with. I guess it's just, I never thought about it that way, but it just must be unlimited what you can do with it. Yeah, there's this one writer named David Embry who was writing in the 1940s, and he kind of outlined these six basic cocktails. Um, so really, most cocktails are based on a few variations. And really, if we look at it, there's two categories, aromatic and sour. Aromatic, something like a Manhattan, and sour, something like a daiquiri. And it goes from there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, and what do you drink, Jerry? Well, well, <laughs> whiskey. I'm, a low key, I, I'm very straight. It's one or the other, but straight vodka or champagne. Wow. Yeah. Straight yeah. vodka. Yeah. See, yeah. champagne always is in competition with whiskey for my favorite drink. That's for sure. Yeah, champagne yeah. is ro my tequila. wife Rosemary's tequila, tequila with jalapeno in there. Oh my! Do you like mezcal? Love. Okay, just good. started. I've been okay. drinking tequila forever. I just started to drink mezcal and like this year, and I love that's it. That's another trend mm -hmm. right now. That yeah. switch from the the serious tequila drinkers to the mezcal. Well, tequila, you know, 
let's not get started on tequila, but the thing <laughs> about it is that I, I think this is true. There's no other drink that gives you the energy, mm-hmm. the physical energy that tequila does. Is that interesting? Or, or is, maybe that's just me. I think. You know, a lot of people have different theories about what tequila does to you. Uh, some of some people talk about the energy behind it. Some people talk about the hangover behind it. Um, I think it really depends on why and how you drink it that affects your mood and the way you you know you're energized by it. I think if you know if you're drinking tequila cocktails and they're not too um, boozy and they're not they're not too sweet. You know that you can have something that really just gives you a kick and and uh, you know make sure that you have a wonderful evening. We, Obviously, if you drink uh, you know a, a bunch of shots of tequila, of cheap tequila, then that's another story altogether. <laughs> you probably get this question a lot as somebody who uh, you know kind of extols the virtues of alcohol. We all so and particularly those of us who work with so many young people, yeah. you know, often think about the kind of the caveats and uh, you know what kind of what um, what we should think about when we think about enjoying alcohol responsibly. How do you? Think about that process. It talk about it. Well, alcohol for adults first and foremost. I think that's really important. And and second, I think that the culture that we create through craft cocktail bars is we're we're really turning drinking more into a ritual, which is something that you enjoy well made culinary cocktails, craft cocktails, and you're not focusing on quantity. You're focusing on quality, and I think that that's essential to responsibility in the end. When we're looking at not just housing a bunch of tequila shots. Um, we're we're looking at really um, creating excellent mezcal and tequila uh, cocktails. I think that changes the the discourse yeah, on that. I, I mean, I would think is it safe to say that people that are consuming craft cocktails are probably not going to overdrink or well, it's or, not, or not. <laughs> no, not safe. To, <laughs> not I, I mean, there's all but, kinds of people, but yes, ultimately, I think that it changes the context of yeah. it, and it's really. The the goal is not to get. And their desire and their intention. Yeah. It's the intentionality. So it's something you adults know? can enjoy responsibly, yeah. and that context is critical to making sure that it's something that we don't encourage or promote over drinking. It's by law also that we train our staff to, to, to not over-serve um, people, make sure that we recognize they have limits, and sometimes that they might lose track of those limits, so we, we stop them if they're over-drinking. Yeah. Not just for that reason. We also do a lot of work with... Uh, collective action for safe spaces to do training around sexual har- harassment and violence um, because unfortunately alcohol is weaponized sometimes and um, and and so how we can be bystanders and, and, and intervene when that happens so that we can stop people from using that's alcohol that's uh, important. well that's really important. outstanding yeah, yeah outstanding. and Jerry since we've got an HR expert here yeah. uh, one of the you know one of the people with the most expertise probably anywhere uh, how is the kind of the whole Me Too movement, sexual harassment? How's it uh, impacted your work uh, at with how many hundreds of thousands of employees? Hundred sixty thousand employees in North America. Um, well, to be quite honest, we were ahead of the game. Uh, mm-hmm. We recognized these issues, so we applaud the Me Too movement. But we had already recognized many of these issues and had foundational training already at Sodexo. But we really know there's a ways to go in society and in our organization, and we continue to build on those conversations. But I really have to applaud um, Derek and his team focusing on um, and, and how did you characterize uh, that alcohol can be a weapon? Yeah, weaponized? it's weaponized. Yeah, that's yeah, that, terrible. It, it, it is, and especially that educational piece for young people. So kudos to you, but we absolutely recognize, and it goes full circle to the question you raised previously, 
starting with awareness, understanding what these issues are and educating first. Jerry Mason Hall, like Derek, you're at the top of your game. Um, and I, I want to know where you started because uh, Sodexo is a big company. Uh, you're mm. chair and president of the foundation. You're a senior VP there. You've had a career that's uh, been characterized by really important work on diversity and inclusion. Uh, what were the beginnings for you? Wow, thank you, Billy. Did, um, you, did you wait till you were 27 <laughs> like Derek, or did you start no, sooner or later? Mine was a more standard route and, and clearly not as much fun as Derek. So so I, I, I would like to go back and change my route, change my path and learn from him. But I came up the traditional way. Um, I'm a lawyer, so went through law school. Where did you go to law school? Um, here, I came back to D.C. to go to George Washington. Oh, that's where I went to law school. Uh, all right. Yeah. So see, kindred spirits. Um, but yeah, so I took that traditional route. And because of a slight pivot, you know, family, I wanted to have a standard hours. So I decided, being right here in Washington, D.C., to go into the government. Um, so I had a lot of uh, appointments, political appointments in the federal government, did some local. Uh, but it was the employment and labor law focus that kind of I transitioned into human resources and ended up focusing on diversity and inclusion. And so that's how I joined Sodexo um, in a DNI role and then uh, moved into a number of roles. DNI meaning diversity I'm sorry. and inclusion. Yes, okay. my apologies. Thank <laughs> you, Billy. Um, yeah, have heavy emphasis on inclusion, uh, which is a big part of the value systems and the culture at Sodexo worldwide. And there is where I really started focusing on this um, issue of food scarcity and hunger, uh, especially in the United States, because of the foundation and my introduction to the foundation at Sodexo and all of the volunteer work um, that our teams do. So now, fast forward as the head of human resources, and Billy and I were just talking about 160,000 people in North America, um, and they're very active with this issue and hands on the ground, uh, really focused on how do we feed uh, people today, but then the foundation goes a step further and how do we solve the problem for the future. Jerry, um, I want to go back a little bit and mm -hmm. uh, hear from you a little bit more about the inclusion and diversity and kind of how you approach it, what, you know, what your philosophy is, maybe how it's changed as you've been you yeah. know, prioritizing this for so many years through a couple of different roles that you've had. Yeah, so thank you, Debbie. In, um, before here and early in the 2000s, the emphasis was very much on representation um, of a number, especially women and minorities, in the workplace. Unfortunately, um, here we are today still talking about gender balance and gender equity, and we have a long ways to go um, both in the United States and globally. But that was the focus on just bringing more people into the organizations. And now we not just focus on numbers um, coming in, but then how inclusive is the culture? Because you can bring somebody in that's different and then try to force that um, round peg into a square hole, right? And so those are the areas where we focus, having an inclusive environment, an inclusive culture that helps us thrive and um, really focus on those differences. And is that sort of around moving up to the leadership 
roles in the organization? Is that how you, um, you know, think about the success of inclusion, or how do, is it about promotions um, and leadership? It, it, it's the whole. It runs the gamut, especially in my human resources world. But yes, part of, and we actively measure. Um, we set targets. We set standards of what we want to accomplish. So we measure them, and part of it is. Do we have gender balanced teams, for example? Um, and we have research that shows uh, far more productive gender balanced teams deliver better. Uh, we did that just, we have partners like Catalyst who does that work, but also we did it on ourselves. So we looked at our teams, and those who were delivering results um, were gender balanced. And in even um, totally homogenous female is not the solution either. It is balance. So where there's 60-40, um, that is optimum. So we need to go out and get some more men at Share Our Strength <laughs> because we're about 80-20. We have 240 staff and I'm about 200 of them I think it's working just fine. Yes. You're delivering. You're delivering. It seems to be delivering. working pretty well, but maybe yes. we can be more productive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our experience with um, the Sodexo Foundation and the Stop Hunger USA um, initiative has been, um, you know, multi Fold, but one of the things that's been so important is the support for our Youth Ambassadors Program Absolutely. and this kind of next generation of leaders. And one of the things that strikes me about the two of you as different as your work is, is I feel like you're both uh, kind of like ushering in a new generation in your in your field. And I'm curious for, for you, Derek, did you have a sense of uh, there's an opportunity here to really uh, think different and to uh, and to kind of challenge the conventional wisdom when it came to uh, alcoholic beverages, cocktails, right. the spirits industry in D.C. And there's probably a lot of young people who are inspired by what you're doing that see an opportunity they hadn't seen before. And then I also want to hear from Jerry about how you know that's working with young people uh, on our hunger issue in particular. Well, I think in a way the title of this uh, podcast is perfect: add passion and stir, because really. There wasn't a lot of thought about changing anything. It was really about doing what we loved. And so when I came across this, these histor- this history of cocktails, and I was very interested in it, and, and, and at first I thought I was the only one, and then I found a community around that, um, which was on the Internet and also in different cities um, that were doing this, that were actually changing the way people drink and doing these amazing cocktails and creating cocktail bars. I just sort of followed that because I loved it, and I thought it was really cool, and I found a group of people who were uh, on the same wavelength. So I think sometimes you know, there's this conscious change that people uh, seek to create, and then sometimes it's just a question of doing something you really love, and there's something about that sincerity and that interest that really um, you know, appeals to people. What should we understand about how alcohol shapes society? I know this is something mm-hmm. that you've thought and written and taught about. Most of us think of alcohol as something that's, uh, you know, maybe a social lubricant in, some, in, a, in a way that we let off steam and, and really enjoy uh, ourselves and all in all of its different flavors and and forms. But uh, you've thought about how alcohol really shapes societies. Yeah. What should we know about that? That's fascinating to I, me. I think it's important to know that it's been there at the beginning of all human endeavors. I mean, when we really think about alcohol exists before humans, right? Like if a uh, if you have a fruit that drops in the forest and it has these yeast saccharomyces, it'll start, you know, turning it into something fizzy and alcoholic and 
early uh, primates would eat them. I mean, it's alcohol exists before humans. So is as this soon one as, of the theories about you know, what happened to the dinosaurs? That, I just this learned something new today, why Derek. The dinosaurs. Thank you. So animals, there's animals that consume alcohols. But the reason that we know that alcohol is so important to human evolution is because we've evolved to drink it. For many species, it's poisonous. But for us, we have the dehydrogenase, the, the particular uh, genes that help us to um, process it. So process there are yeah. still species today for whom it's poisonous. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's, okay. there's some that it, you know, like or, arboreal monkeys that it that also um, can consume alcohol. So essentially, alcohol is something that evolved with us, and it evolved with our our different endeavors. Whether that's uh, is a spiritual technology, it certainly has been used in that way. A social mm-hmm. technology, we can see it in that way. And so I think, um, and and agriculture. I mean, beer preceded bread. Okay, I mean, there's basically the same process to make each one. So beer preceded bread. And and that shows us that it's really been there. And and so when we look at alcohol, I think that we can see that it's essential to human progress. And it, and so everybody should drink more. No, just kidding. <laughs> Everyone should drink just enough. And so fruits, <laughs> vegetables, plants. No, not vegetables. It, it comes from fruit mm-hmm. and plants. That's right. It comes from grain. From grain, mm-hmm. grain alcohol. So whiskey, for instance, is from grain. It can be from uh, barley right. or okay. uh, in the case of um, bourbon, it's from corn. Uh, potatoes. It can be comes from, from potatoes. Wheat. Yeah. Then yeah. you have potatoes. So basically you can make alcohol about uh, out of anything that has sugar in it or can father be processed father used to drink to potato whiskey during the war. Do you remember that story? Or uh, did I make that up? Vaguely. He, he said during World War II, that's how they, they made whiskey out of potatoes. Okay. It's possible, right? Yeah. It's it's not technically whiskey. It's not technically some, no, whiskey. No, but it's something. Vodka's it's some alcoholic something. Based, right? They do make potato-based vodkas. Yeah. Um, yeah. He didn't say, maybe he didn't say whiskey, but definitely alcohol from potatoes, as I remember. And, and we're old enough to have a father who was part of that generation that had two martinis, two at martinis lunch a day. every day. Okay. Yep. And, you know, I yep. never, you know, he, and then he worked the rest of the day and he came home and never noticed anything different about him. But I just, like, as I got older, I realized, like, you know, that's having two martinis at lunch well, every we day. We might How have noticed a difference if he didn't drink and then we saw him <laughs> yes. drink. That's all we knew. But in the in the kind of vast diversity of cultures around the world, mm-hmm. does alcohol must play some different roles in some of them, but also some similar roles in all of them? Or Absolutely. Is, the, one of the interesting statement? things is that there's, um, there's this book. It's uh, called Drunken Comportment. Um, and it's a survey in the 1970s um, of alcohol and the way that it affects different cultures. Um, and so it's really just pulling in all this anthropological information to, into one book about drinking. And we think as a culture that, that drinking does certain things. There's three particular things that we think about alcohol. One is that it creates this sort of licentiousness, you know, one, two is that it creates... Licentiousness meaning... Meaning um, sort of just, we, you know, we a, get a little excited about other people when okay. we're drinking. Uh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it in a clean fashion. Um, we... <laughs> oh, we've lost my sister. Okay, keep going, keep going. <laughs> that it, uh, uh, that it, in, it enables this truth-telling, that people, when they drink, yeah. they want to mm-hmm. tell you mm-hmm. about what's their truth, you know? Um, and then the third, that it, it kind of uh, can create violence, um, that people become more violent when they drink. Um, All three of these things turn out to not be universally true, right? Not all cultures exhibit these habits, which means that it doesn't mean that alcohol doesn't somehow aid or, or, or push these, especially when people are over drinking. But it means that our culture has a particular relationship with alcohol. 
that I think that we can change and that we we do change and we have changed through creating these cocktail bars that are a little more a little different than your average bar. Are there, are there cultures that don't drink? I know there are religions, but are there mm-hmm. cultures? There's cultures that don't that, drink, that and don't there, drink there's even some, uh, a few cultures that never had or possessed alcohol, which is very, uh, very rare in, in human experience. I'm not going there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Papua New Guinea or something. Yeah, why would yeah. we? Um, Jerry, so I started out asking Derek about kind of like ushering this new generation in the in his, in his field. I feel like you're doing that with uh, the... Uh, you know, Stop Hunger USA and all the young people you're mm-hmm. uh, investing in. Uh, you know, Debbie and I have been at Share Our Strength for 34 years. And so, you know, our conviction is that the future obviously depends on the next generation. We're trying to, you know, create a built-to-last institution. Uh, and some of the young people that have been introduced to us through Sodexo's support uh, give me just so much hope for the future. They're so dynamic, so idealistic, so mm-hmm. committed to this issue of, uh, food justice uh, and and see hunger as a solvable problem. Tell us a little bit about how the work of the uh, foundation has unfolded and kind of what your goals are, how you're measuring your mm-hmm. progress. And if you could tell us anything about particularly some of the young people that you've worked with, uh, because we've had a couple on the show and they've been amazing. Uh, they are awesome. They are absolutely incredible. And so, so we share that view um, with you and Debbie, that it is the youth that will help to solve these challenges for the future. And so that's why we're so committed, for example, with No Kid Hungry um, and investing in these young people who are trying to solve these problems. And so our foundation, uh, we have grants to our um, youth that uh, the hunger squad, as we call them, who we we see them working in their communities, and so we give them grants to so they get five thousand dollars for towards their own education as a scholarship, but also five thousand dollars towards their charity of choice. So those are the grants that we honor them with um, when we recognize annually, but. You know, for me, uh, one of the most exciting things is the fresh eyes to an approach and a challenge at problem solving. So, for example, one young man comes to mind, 19-year-old Jack Griffith. So from and, where? Uh, he's from Georgia, okay. um, and I believe, I hate to misstate, but I'm pretty sure he's at University of Michigan. But Jack I met last year, and at that age, he's a digital native. Right. So he looks at the problem um, through a digital lens and he says, how can I help those in need? So he's created an app, uh, Food Finder, and, and, you know, just like a GPS uh, based. And he is able to help people find locations where um, they can receive food. So families, pantries and and banks, exactly connecting those dots. So it's just one example of the work in and we again when we're um, looking at these young people in I mean from the age of 5 to 25 um, as the, the the applicants and I've had you know young men 10 years old comes in and inspires us with his action he found and you his at challenge 10? yes he comes to wow. us and we're honoring him at a dinner and he says you know I, everybody can do one thing and so you feel very small in his presence because they are. They're taking on these challenges. 
and and you know Deb and I were talking before about the rally this past yeah. weekend. Um, us being this here, is the, the, the gun safety yes. rally that took place in Washington and all across the nation. Yeah. And yeah. and regardless of the issue, the these young people are taking action. And so that's what's most important. Wherever you land on any side of an issue, they are they are committed to, in fact, being the change they want to see in the world. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I'm a little bit more optimistic now for change is because what occurred to me at the rally and after the rally was here's here are these young kids who have come out and not only are they, you know, leading on the issue, but they're being recognized, reinforced and really applauded by people outside of their of their peers, mm-hmm. which I think is incredibly important, which will give them the fuel and the energy to go forward. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there's so much for them to learn about how to really change these laws. I mean, they have to mm-hmm. really get sophisticated and smarter and knowledgeable about how to do this. And you could sort of see where things would fizzle. But the fact that, and, and I think this is where Sodexo and Share Strength can play a real role with this is the connection I'm making with these young people is not just to um, you know, have them on a podcast, but to really find ways to shine a light on them and encourage them Absolutely. because then they then they get the bug and they're yes. like, OK, people are listening mm-hmm. and, and, and I can make that, change on top of that, though. So we see again. So here's the young people. They have this vision. And to your point, there may be a certain degree of naivete. Um, but then. The rest of us who have the experience, who know how to navigate legislation and all of these other complicated bureaucracies can work with them. And so we at Sodexo recognize that, you know, stopping hunger is too big for any single organization to solve. So that's why we partner with organizations like Share Our Strength. Um, and bringing these young people into the fold. And so that goes back to your question about diversity and inclusion, because it is this diversity of thought um, that together will help us to innovate and solve these problems for the future. Jerry, I wanted to ask you a question about inclusion, if, if you mm, don't mind, please. Absolutely. I, I, it's interesting because I love that idea, that switch to recognizing inclusion, and, and, and I definitely see that in terms of the food industry as well and restaurants as, yes. a, as a necessary change that we have to do. But what are some of the tools that you advocate or use for that? So, to create that inclusivity. So foundational is just awareness, mm-hmm. um, absolutely cultural awareness. So basic recognizing that our un- that we all have unconscious bias mm-hmm. doesn't make us bad people, but recognizing that we all bring our experiences. You and I share the fact that we're native Washingtonians, mm-hmm. but we also have many differences. Right. So we, um, as we onboard members of Sodexo, that is a basic uh, training that we share um, to understand that we bring these things to the workplace and how do we work through them. So I think that's the the biggest key in creating an inclusive culture. We just had an unconscious tra- uh, unconscious bias training at Share Strength for the first time. It was really. It was very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. You know, went into it thinking, you know, yeah. I don't have any of these biases, but the way that you, you You're do. human. Yeah, yes, you, you do. do. <laughs> you do. You and you, you can even you can even sort of figure out which ones to answer in a way, but they still get you on, you know, you, you still realize through different exercises that you have these biases. It was very helpful. Right. Yeah. This happened a lot in, in the sort of uh, history of bartending as well. When we started to see this. Um, arc of craft cocktails and classic cocktails and, and bartending history come up. 
a lot of it was white males that were kind of like this is at the forefront of whether it was Jerry Thomas, um, you know, or um, uh, Harry Johnson, or you know, some of the these like great old bartenders from the past. Um, but what we didn't look hard enough and see that there was a lot of women bartenders mm -hmm. and that there were people of color who were bartenders in D.C. There was something called the Black Mixology Club where you had this group of pre-prohibition um, black bartenders. And, and in fact, that they made up a huge part of the bartending landscape and they just weren't the ones that were initially the most recognized. Mm -hmm. And Derek, I'm sure you saw a lot of that with chefs. Mm -hmm. You work so closely uh, with them, but that's been the history, you know, the very male-dominated. Mm -hmm. um, and now you see all of these wonderful women chefs. Yeah, there's this one organization uh, called Speed Rack, which is a, a female bartending competition, all-female bartending competition, which it raises uh, money for um, breast cancer research. And essentially, they have women compete to see how fast they can make and these excellent classic cocktails. So it's it's speed and making them accurately, and that um, that's been going on for years now, at least five years, I think. In D.C. or well, national? Well, it's national and now international, but uh, they just had a competition in D.C. And since that organization has started, I've seen more and more women become leaders within the sort of classic cocktail bartending community. So it's definitely been a wonderful um, thing to see. Well, the good uh, bartender, you know, for people is obviously it's the drinks, but it's the personality and it's yeah. the mm -hmm. communication with the person on the other side of the bar. It's how you make somebody feel. It's how you make somebody feel. Yes. Yeah. This is, um, that's a Danny Meyerism right yeah. there, right? It's, <laughs> it's all about how you make that's people right. feel. Yeah. It's that simple and it's that hard, he says. They, they can drink at it's home. True. They can drink with and their friends. They can friend, learn how right? to make right. a drink. Yeah. But how do you make them really feel welcome and special at the bar? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, tell us um, favorite drink or favorite place to drink aside from your own oh, okay. establishments. <laughs> well, my favorite drink is well known. It's a dry martini. Um, for me, that's the king of cocktails. There's nothing that even comes close. Hmm. Just because, like our dad. Because, <laughs> because it's uh, something about that sort of uh, primal connection to the juniper mm -hmm. and the spices in it. Um, something about how... Uh, like cold and refreshing it is. What's in it? For, um, Just, for me, it has yeah. to be gin. So to gin. end all arguments, there is... The original. The gin martini the, is right. the correct martini. However, you can create something called a vodka martini. I accept that. I understand, you know. Um, Thank but, you. <laughs> it's my choice. But but the gin martini... Uh, and, and I'll make you one, Jerry, one day that'll mm -hmm. change your mind, I think. Okay. I'm in. Mind. So that's um, all that's in it is gin? Gin, vermouth, orange bitters. Um, and the proper technique has to be there to make it very cold, um, to make it bracing um, and refreshing. Um, so that's my favorite drink. Is it always and, orange bitters? Mm-hmm. Okay. See, actually, a lot of people don't realize that the, the dry martini was preceded by the martini, which was a sweet drink, which had uh, a gin called Old Tom Gin that had a little sweetness to it with sweet vermouth and bitters in it. And that was preceded by another drink called the Martinez, and then before that, the Manhattan. So all of those exist as a continuum of drinks um, that are related. So when you think about a Manhattan, Manhattan becomes a Martinez, Martinez becomes a Martini, and Martini becomes a dry Martini. And a special glass. I mean, the mm -hmm. glass is so important oh, to yeah. a drink. I just, I, I want to send half my drinks back in bars when they give me, you know, wine and a juice glass or whatever. Oh, it just right. It drives right. me crazy. But now there's this big trend within bars to do this really elaborate and interesting um, sort of glassware. So, for instance, at the Columbia Room, we do a couple cool things. One, we started um, mixing cocktails with sound. So we use these singing bowls 
to mix the drink. What, how does, what's that mean? How does that work? So essentially there's this bowl that you hit, and you've seen it in like, like yes. Tibetan meditation mm-hmm. or Buddhist meditation. Yeah. You hit the bowl and you spin it around, and it, the, the, the drink essentially leaps and fizzes um, right in front of you. It's pretty and, cool. And it tastes different. Right, and it tastes different, yeah, okay. absolutely. I'm, okay. I'm taking us all to the <laughs> Columbia Road. I think Seriously? that's where we want to be. Yeah. Absolutely. So we, well, let's we get to your favorite drink. We just can't do it right now. We just can't do it right okay. now. <laughs> your favorite drink. Well, I'm with Derek. Okay. It's either going to, well, champagne, or it's going to be the, uh, although I prefer the vodka, but the dry martini. Deb sure. I like a margarita up with salt, oh, good. fresh lime, and a jalapeno in there, mm-hmm. and and some um, Grand Marnier. You know, that's the, I the need mix to, for me. I need to hang out with you guys. I've never. This is embarrassing. I've never had a cocktail. I've only had the wine is the only thing, and champagne is the only thing. I've never had a martini. I've never had any kind of cocktail. I, but, Are you, you know, serious? Yeah, isn't that weird? Well, I think all of so. you have to come to the club room and let me make you a dry martini mm-hmm. the way that I like to make it to I'm see there. if it's uh, something that I'm you would too. enjoy. Yeah, I would love that. I didn't mention my favorite. Cocktail bar, though. Yeah, the favorite uh, place. My favorite place right now is Bar Mini. Bar Mini. Really? Yeah, so that's Jose, Jose Andres. Andres. Yeah, yeah, so he yeah. has Mini Bar. Something changed yes. over there? And then you have Mini, the Bar Mini, yeah, which is the, the cocktail. They make those good grilled cheese sandwiches mm-hmm. over at the yeah. Bar Mini. So it has a wonderful combination of making really creative, thoughtful, um, visually engaging um, drinks, and then have making classic drinks as well. So. So part of your mission, Derek, is to kind of educate people and be a little mm-hmm. bit of an evangelist for all of this information about the role of alcohol. Does it, uh, at one level, does it drive you a little crazy that most people kind of like blithely go about their drinking without any real understanding of, you know, these like really fascinating roots? No, not at all. I mean, I'm there for people who would like to know more about it. Ultimately, there, there's nothing you have to learn about your drink. All you have to do is enjoy it. So when it comes down to Love it. that. I think people good drink whatever they drink. I mean, I also mm-hmm. love a good rum and coke myself sometimes, so it's not that I'm, you know, some snob. Do you drink and, beer? And at home, I drink Bud Light. Do you drink be- people Bud People are Light? always surprised at that, but I love Bud Light, so. There you go. <laughs> uh, tell me. I, so I, I will tell you this. My <laughs> little drinking story is I attended Vassar, and Matthew Vassar was a brewer. So there was free beer always. At Vassar, campus. always. Yes. Always. Really? Wow. And now I'm, that has changed. However, it's been some time since I was there. But You had your fill. I did. Yeah. Uh, beer allows me to turn off my mind a little bit, whereas with cocktails and spirits, because I'm a, a judge that like the San Francisco World Spirits competition, stuff mm-hmm. like that, I have to think through it, and I can't mm-hmm. turn that the noodle off in that case. But mm-hmm. when it comes to beer or Bud Light, I can turn it all off and just drink something that's completely refreshing and easy. You've tried other beers though, right? Besides, I have, yeah, yeah. I'm not much for those hop, hoppy beers, so this is going to make every beer enthusiast angry, but I just don't care for it. I was at um, the Union Square Cafe, Danny Meyer's restaurant, mm-hmm. with Danny Meyer about three weeks ago, and a gentleman who collects wines uh, came in and he saw Danny sitting there, and he knows Danny, and so he sent over, uh, towards the end of the evening, an 1863 Madeira. I've never seen a wine bottle mm-hmm. that says 1863 on it, like Lincoln's presidency, yes. right? He sent over an 1863 Madeira, and I was wishing that 
somebody like you, Derek, was there to explain. And he said it'll last another couple decades. He oh, said yeah. It's the kind of wine that, you know, can just, it'll last. Madeira, the way it's designed is to last. Um, it's really beaten up a little bit in its production so that it'll, it'll last and stay the course. We have some interest. At the Columbia Room, we do a number of vintage spirits. Our oldest one is from 1811. So it's an 1811 Napoleon Cognac. So that was the year that Napoleon's son was born. Um, and so, you know, and then we have pre-Castro Cuban rum, things like that. Yeah. Is that is that hard to come by? <laughs> yes. It's yeah. extremely rare to come by. And, and expensive, and so, I'm sure. And, and expensive. I think right now, and don't quote me on this, but I think it's pretty close, about $950 an ounce for the Napoleon Cognac. And we get it from, um, we work with a collector, a guy named Brian Robinson, who is a fantastic um, human being and collector who who will go out and find these extremely rare spirits for us. Jerry, you a foodie too? You know, I have um, developed an appreciation. I am not a intellectual foodie, but I absolutely, and I say that in the context of my chefs, um, who can, much like Derek, can give you the history, the explanation of everything on the plate. Yeah. I cannot do that, but I absolutely have an appreciation. Um, and it's really been. The scene has changed so. oh so much oh, in goodness. Washington. It's oh just, my goodness! Yeah, it's, it's hard to fabulous. keep up. It's, it's really fabulous. wonderful. Yeah, we compete with, um, you know, of course, New York will always be New York, but it DC's is. DC is pretty great these that's days. A, I agree. I mean, it really is. I agree. We're hugely competitive. New York, Chicago, who have mm. known for. Um, food cities, but I think we're absolutely competitive. We're punching way above our, our, our weight level, basically. I mean, if you look at D.C., it's uh, 700,000 people. You know, I mean, New York is 7 million. So the, Great point. The, ty yeah. the type of mm -hmm. food, the variety of food we have, the chefs that we have. The international scene that we have here yes. now. And the international yes. food is just it's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what comes next for both of you. What's next on the agenda for Stop Hunger USA, and what are some of the goals ahead? Um, I know you're going to keep doing what you're doing and keep investing in young people. Absolutely. And really focusing on the partnerships, um, who's doing the work for the future. So we absolutely will continue to feed people today. So our work with food banks, et cetera, we will continue that. But we absolutely want to continue to grow our partnerships and especially working with young people who are focused on solutions for the future and truly ending this problem. Do you keep in touch with a lot of these kids as they... Yes, as a matter that. of fact, um, that is something that we've really started in earnest to see where they That's have nice. moved on and what else are they doing after graduating from college, um, what other activities they've developed, established. And again, um, mentioning Jack, I think there's a huge opportunity in the technology space and how do we leverage digital um, to contribute to the solutions for this problem. Uh, how has social media changed what you do in digital, Derek? Uh, social media has changed hugely. I mean, we our pop-up bar, which we do, um, we did the Game of Thrones pop-up bar. We did uh, Miracle on 7th Street, which was a holiday pop-up bar. And now we're doing Cherry Blossom pop-up bar, um, which is which is open um, seven days a week. Um, and basically, the we have these elaborate sets. You know, we have 90,000 plastic cherry blossoms and 1,300... Uh, monarch butterflies, some of which are mechanical, uh, ten foot um, Godzilla that is uh, animatronic, uh, and so people come in and they take pictures. And so pop up means like diff it, it can be up for any amount of time. Right, but it's not permanent. I know that, but it, does it? 
What's the average time that a pop-up is? We do it up? from one month to one or two okay. months, basically. And so we just do a different theme each time. And, and even you just if, change it every month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so right Remember now- Remember cities? Remember oh, the, yeah, exactly. Right? Same concept. But it didn't no. work, really. I, no. I mean, they kept sort of shrinking the, I don't know, it just seemed like- the pop-ups now seem to work. Well, with the pop-ups, oh, the way Cities was a restaurant that changed their, a, the city that their food culture And everything about the restaurant, every the music, the decor, the yeah. plates, the food, all of it changed, I think, yeah, two or three It was an Adams Morgan, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the, yeah, over time, they got less and less. We've decided, yeah. we realized that over time, we have to do more, more and more. more. So basically, the, yeah. we have two people that are employed full-time just uh, creating uh, the these amazing, Matt Fox and Adriana Salome, they create these amazing... Um, sets, basically, that people get to come into and take pictures. Um, they work with a, a team of volunteers and artists to do it. It's really impressive. Very you know? cool. So the, well, yeah. So, I mean, I guess in terms of Derek's conviction that you've got to do more and more, I really love that philosophy. I'd say our leadership challenge at Share Our Strength, broadly defined, not just in our organization, but in the community that we work, is to persuade people that we have to actually set our sights even higher. Um, I, I, I always say that our biggest failures are failures of imagination. And, you know, if you don't set your sights at the right place, then even if you're successful at what you're doing, it's kind of, it's almost pointless if you haven't aimed at the right target. So uh, certainly in the hunger space, you know, I feel like sure our strength is on the verge. I don't mean tomorrow or next month, but certainly in the next few years ahead, we're on the verge of actually ending childhood hung- hunger in the United States. That is a, a solvable problem. Uh, there's still lots of other issues, poverty and food insecurity. But if we can end childhood hunger, then I think the response is like, okay, we've got to do more. You know, if we if we know that we can do that, can we get that next rung of the ladder? Can we get families who are food insecure? Can we get families who are living in poverty and find out a way to make a difference for them? Derek, any I'm, writing on your part? Yeah, I'm the chief spirits advisor for the National Archives. So um, we did, um, uh, a couple years ago, we did a series called The History of the Cocktail, which basically in 10 parts and with 30 different experts, bartenders, historians, writers, we went through and uh, kind of charted this history of the cocktail as as something uniquely American, as a culinary um, um, product. And right now I'm working on a book that's basically um, talking about that experience. Uh, What will it be called, do you know? Not yet. Yeah, I feel like you and on it. you and Ken Burns should do a spring twenty nineteen part <laughs> series once your book comes out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would be great. Um, well, thank you both for being with us. Um, I, I I really love what you're doing, Jerry, and I th- think you know when Debbie was talking about um, the the young leaders of the the March for Our Lives. You know, one of the things you kind of hinted at but didn't quite say was that, you know, sometimes there's an advantage to uh, you don't know what you don't know, and that can be powerful, right? You don't get discouraged. You don't get disappointed. Mm-hmm. You think That's right. everything can change. And um, I, I think... Yeah, the lack of cynicism that yeah, we and, get and, after and, a You know, age. most of the it's really true. powerful that change that comes about, whether it's in an industry or in a community or in a, uh, you know, national politics, comes from people who are undeterred by what That's the right. past you know, was all about. Um, the history of this country. Yeah, it's the history of this country. You know, even in the in the um, omnibus budget bill that the Republican Congress passed last week and that the president signed, there were some things in there that if you would have looked at it uh, six months ago, everybody would have said was impossible. There was a $610 million increase in Head Start funding. 
Uh, there was a Department of Education budget bigger than any budget that President Obama ever got through. There was a $2.3 billion increase in the child care development grant. So, you know, I always feel like the greatest failures are failures of not strategy, but of imagination. And, um, you know, you're both examples, Derek and Jerry, of people who have brought imagination that just didn't exist, whether it has to do with spirits or whether it has to do with diversity or inclusion and young people uh, that just didn't exist and changed the way people think about what they do now. So um, really thrilled to have you here. Derek Brown, continued success. So I can't wait for your book. We'll be keeping an eye out for it. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so Columbia much. Room I can't wait for that martini. To find right. you. <laughs> um, and Jerry Mason Hall from Sodexo Foundation and uh, Senior VP for HR at Sodexo and Stop Hunger USA. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And thank you, Billy and Debbie, for all that you're doing because you are making a major change as well in this food space. Well, Derek said it earlier when he said, you know, find something that you love to do mm-hmm. and yes. what you're passionate about. And, you know, that's we're lucky to have that. So thank you. Yep. Thank you both. And Deb, thanks for being here. Yep, it's great. always more fun to do this with you. Thank you. Um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for listening to this special millennial edition of Add Passion and Stir, brought to you by the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. I'm Chandra Jenkins. Fueled by consistent access to nutritious food, children who learn, play, and thrive are more likely to achieve the education, health, and employment necessary for a stable future. And that means they're less likely to experience hunger in the future. Yet today, over 42 million Americans, 13 million of them children, go hungry every year in the United States. That's one reason why Sodexo, the world leader in quality of life services, created the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. Together, we mobilize experts, innovators, volunteers, and donors to feed children in the United States today, and we advocate for policies that ensure no child is hungry again tomorrow. We believe today's youth can be the generation to end hunger. So we're investing in young people to help them start and grow innovative solutions. Please visit HelpStopHunger.org to learn about ways we support youth leaders. And while you're at HelpStopHunger.org, check out the Alliance to End Hunger's Youth Opportunity Resource Inventory, a one-stop shop for young people seeking ways to join the fight against hunger. Thank you.